this time that we have in uh, our service we call communion is it's it's to remember that sacrifice that Jesus made the sacrifice of our savior on the one hand his death was a hideous act of evil there are some who have portrayed it in such a way that we we can understand that it is it is the most evil action ever taken against a human being because Christ was perfect. He was absolute perfect human in every way. And in his perfection, he had not sinned. There was nothing ever that he had, had, had did wrong. So when they arrested him and they put him on trial and they beat him and they crucified him, all of that was incredibly, incredibly evil because it was done against a, a, a perfect man. So while we see this absolute evil action, there's another part that we have to put alongside. And, and in our thinking and in our theology, we have to lay the two side by side. Because at exactly the same time of all of that evil, the greatest event of love and mercy and goodness that has ever occurred was taking place. There are some difficulties of how our finite minds can put those two together. But the truth is there. That is reality. This incredibly evil action was taken against Christ while at the same time He was doing the most marvelous, gracious, amazing thing for the human race. Glory to God. Jesus' life was filled with difficulty. If you read about his ministry, he, he had three years of ministry. And it was marked by repeated episodes of persecution and conflict. And some of that conflict was pretty intense. His response to the hostility is our example and our encouragement as we are surrounded with increasing hostility. Our society is turning more and more against Christianity. Put that in the context a little bit where Jesus was at. He was a Jew. He had those Jewish connections. And here he is being the Messiah, the one that Judaism had, had been looking for all the time throughout the history of that people. And Jesus is there physically with them, doing miracles, teaching. And the Jewish community rejected him, even to the extent of saying, oh, you do those miracles because you're of the devil. Out of that conflict, we see multiple times when Jesus encountered lots of hostility. I believe that was also an area of great suffering for him to watch his people reject him. We see in today's passage that trials then, trials are to be expected in every believer's life. And that's difficult for us. I'd like to read today's passage, but I want us to keep that, that idea in mind that, that trials, that suffering, that's part of God's plan. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. 
But do, but, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed. But in that name, let him glorify God. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Peter begins this passage by, by addressing those who read it and us as, as beloved. This was an, a common greeting. It was a common word that was used to express tenderness and compassion, affection, and care. And it's used especially in Scripture, to remind us of God's affection to His people. God loves us. And that love that He has for us, it never changes. It, 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 is, it is always there. And His love becomes a source of incredible strength while we're in the middle of whatever trials, whatever life brings. Now, this letter that we've been going through is very, very much about suffering. And and. I want to remind us the importance of what was going on at the time and why Peter is, is, is giving this message of encouragement and a message of expecting suffering. Peter wrote this letter probably 63 or 64 A.D. And while this is going on, you know, with Peter, there's something else historically going on, and that is that Nero was the Roman emperor. Nero, Nero had problems. Nero had begun a hideous campaign of, of severe persecution against, against Christians. The historian uh, Tacitus tells us that, that Nero, Nero would skin animals and then put the animal skins, the hides, on Christians and then turn wild animals and dogs loose to kill the Christians. Just kind of a sport. He would also just... Just crucify many Christians for no other reason than, yeah, you, you claim to be a Christian, I'm going to nail you to the cross. He also covered some believers with tar and impaled them and, and then lit them on fire to be lights for his nighttime parties. That was the kind of persecution that was going on when when Peter was involved with writing this letter. And while that persecution and hostility was occurring, Peter tells his, his readers, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when trials occur. Expect fiery trials. Jesus actually taught the same thing. We find this in John 15, beginning verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. 
But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. This is an important concept in understanding the suffering and understanding the pain of trials. What this means is, is, is also that the suffering is an important aspect of a believer's life. And suffering is a valuable part of, of God's plan and purpose for every believer. That goes against what we sometimes hear in the body of Christ, that you come to Christ and everything gets really good and, and you're going to get all that you want. You can pray and God will give you everything and life is going to be peaceful and just, just kind of coast. Everything's good. But that's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that there is going to be suffering. And here's a couple of places that we've already looked at that says you need to expect it if you're a believer. And Peter's very specific about the suffering. He's referring specifically to suffering for righteousness' sake. Suffering because you are a believer in Christ. And that's a very important con uh, content in today's passage. It's extremely important for us. Suffering because you are in Christ. The trials and suffering that believers are to endure is also something that God plans and permits to test us. I hate tests. It's one of the reasons that the high school I went to said, no, we're just letting him go. Get him out of here. Nobody likes tests. Well, actually, there are a few. But the kind of testing that, that comes along from suffering, it's not something we would choose. And yet, the idea of testing is a very common theme in Scripture, especially this idea of a fiery trial. The, the prophet Isaiah speaks of this testing as refining, as in the refining process of precious metals. Isaiah 48.10, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. Now, intense heat. Nobody likes, you know, for, for me, the perfect temperature is 50. You get up above 109, that's a little bit much. But we're talking about the, the, the temperature, the, the flame, the fire that, that takes the, the worthless stuff out of gold or silver or platinum or whatever the precious metal is and burns it away. That's the idea that's behind this idea. And the testing and refinement through trials is symbolic of God's design of purging and purifying His people from unrighteousness. He's very specific that this kind of trial is associated with righteousness and the believer's identification with Christ. That's important for us. When we are persecuted because we are believers, what's showing up is the genuineness of our faith. Our faith in Jesus is proved when somebody says, I don't like you because you're a believer. And that's why these passages talk about rejoicing. And it also is why Peter says this testing is not some strange happening. It's designed for believers by God. God allows it and designs it to purify and prove 
the authenticity of our faith in Christ. James talks about this too, and I very often will go to James and I just, I just like to argue with him. What's wrong with you, brother? Because he says this, James 1. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, I like the perfect and complete, not lacking in anything, but that first part, I just that really hits me in a way that I don't feel comfortable with. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. I don't like to go there. And yet that's where Scripture takes us. The other thing I see in, in James and in, in the passage today is that endurance and perseverance cannot be separated from God's work in bringing us to a place of holiness. And the reason is that as believers trust, as we're going through trials, our holiness increases because our reliance is on the essential character of God. When we trust God, we're trusting in all of His holiness. So we just automatically start to become more like Him. So you can't separate our suffering from becoming more holy and more like God. I believe very strongly that God takes us through testing and purification to become more like Christ. I also believe that God is preparing us for our future with Him. I, I don't know, I, and, and you can, you know, all of you great theologians out there can argue with me, but I believe that there will be a purpose for us in our existence for eternity. I don't believe that we're just going to sit around. I don't believe that we're just going to be in one continual church service. I like church services. But for all of eternity, doing this is really, I mean, Okay. Being around Jesus is going to be wild and crazy. And, and, and then we, we, we have somewhere in our culture come up with this idea, this imagery that, that we're going to be on a white, fluffy cloud and long, flowing white robes playing a harp. Not me. That's not, that's not what I'm looking forward to. I also somewhere in my theology have this idea that when God formed humans in the first place and He put them in the garden, which now we look back and we go, that was paradise, and where we're going is going to be paradise. So somewhere in my thinking, and this is just, you know, the book of Bill, I get it. God had a purpose for Adam and Eve in the garden. They didn't just hang out. And I believe that's how God made us. So I believe that He's preparing us in a variety of ways for a purpose. And that purpose will be with Him. And of course, that purpose is going to be glorious and, and marvelous because it's going to be all about the glory of God. I also think that we need to be aware that as we go through our trials, it's a good thing. James and Peter agree that we're to rejoice in our trials and sufferings. And they didn't just come up with this because this is what Jesus taught. Matthew 5, 
This is from the, from the Sermon on the Mount, uh, beginning in uh, chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's an incredible motivation. Blessed. How many of you want to be blessed? There's some of you going, I don't raise my hand at church. I'm a Baptist. Nobody's going to go, no. If you're not going to be blessed, then you're going to be cursed. So, so, you know, how many of you want to be cursed? Raise your hand, you know, and nobody's going there. So we want to be blessed, right? He says, you are blessed when people treat you rotten. Especially when they treat you in a rotten way because you are mine. Because you've given yourself to me. A great motivation for rejoicing and suffering is, is, is a, there's a reward. There's he says that there's a reward in heaven. Now, there's, there's not a, any real certainty of all the details of what those rewards may be. There's some indication that there's some crowns that are given, but, but there's a reward. God has something glorious and awesome for those who suffer for the sake of Christ. just makes you want to go out and suffer. The rewards that we receive in heaven, I believe, and I found this in numerous places in my study this week, this concept, the rewards we receive in heaven will be proportional to how we endure suffering. Yikes. Jesus says this in Luke chapter 6, verse 22. Again, blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. Did you you catch that? Not only does Jesus want you to, to understand that you're blessed when you suffer because you're a believer, He wants you to leap for joy. So you express yourself as being a believer at work and they come back and go, you moron, how could you be a Christian? And your response is, yay! Woohoo! First service didn't get that. I wasn't quite as wound up. Do you ever act that way? Leap for joy. Your reward is great in heaven. Okay, so we're to expect suffering because of our commitment to Christ and our lifestyle as a Christian is then not going to be understood by the world and it's going to be hated by the world and and just by carrying the name, yeah, I'm a Christian, people are going to hate you and do things to, to, to call you names and stuff. And when that happens, we're blessed and we can rejoice. We can leap for joy. I don't know if we live there very well. In verse 14, Peter says, Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. 
Now, what's he mean there? We need to make sure we don't get some confusion here because this is not the same as when the Holy Spirit would come upon the Old Testament prophets. It's different because Jesus hadn't come, the Holy Spirit hadn't been sent, so the Holy Spirit would just come upon the Old Testament characters. That's not what this is. Because he's writing to believers, this is the Holy Spirit already abiding in believers. The Spirit comes into a believer at the moment of salvation and abides there, remains there. The Spirit of God is not going to leave a believer ever. So the idea of the Spirit resting on believers means that the Holy Spirit supernaturally helps, encourages, and gives relief while a believer is in a trial. And many of us have gone through trials and we can look back and go, wow, God was there with me. The Spirit of God did a work in the middle of whatever that was. If you as a believer are reviled for the name of Christ, you are persecuted for your faith in Him. You are blessed. If you are persecuted because your identity is in Christ, there's a reward. And the reason this works this way is because people who are hostile to you see Christ. This is why we rejoice. Doesn't that make you think, think about it? It should make us really understand that, that this suffering because of Jesus is an incredible blessing and honor. It's an honor to be persecuted as a believer. Why? Because if you're persecuted only because you have accepted Jesus Christ, the world that is persecuting, persecuting you says, I see you just the same as I see Jesus. Don't you want to be, man, I don't want to just be carry the name. I want people to look at me and go, there goes Jesus. That guy's just like him. And that comes with a problem because most of the time if people see you and they see you as Jesus, they're going to go, I don't like you. I don't like your morality. I don't like that you carry the name, whatever it might be, because they don't. Okay, if they don't, and the only reason that they persecute you is because you are part of Christ, then you should rejoice because you are who you really say you are and you're, you're living it out. They can see it. As Peter gives us this lesson, he makes it clear there is suffering that doesn't bring this kind of blessing. It doesn't bring a supernatural help from the Holy Spirit. When suffering is the result of unrighteous activity, even in believers, we shouldn't expect a blessing. We should expect conflict. If, you're, if your suffering is, is because you did something really, really bad, you should expect opposition and, and maybe even punishment. Peter addresses some things in, in making this point. He says, murder and theft. Don't any of you be a murderer or a thief, okay? So, so he starts with murder and theft, which were capital crimes in, ancient, in that ancient society. Then he adds an evildoer. And he adds evildoer, and, and the way that works out is, is that he's including all crime. And then he adds troublesome meddler. 
when you stop and think troublesome meddler, how does that measure up to murderer and thief? And the point that he seems to be making is, is not just those bad criminals, but all sin. All sinners hinder this idea of the Holy Spirit's help. Again, it's a motivation to live more and more holy. If you're being persecuted because you break the law, <laughs> you broke the law. God's not going to go, I'm going to bless you for breaking the law. That doesn't work. You want the blessing? Then be persecuted because you represent Christ. Because he's, he's visible in how you live. Paul makes an exhortation to the Thessalonians in, in, a, in a very similar way. In 1 Thessalonians 4.11, he says, And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as, just as we commanded you. And, and what he's getting at is he, he wants you to be a believer who's not stirring stuff up all the time, not agitating conflict. Have you ever been around somebody that likes to do that? I've known some people in my life where it just seems like they are, their motivation and their, their existence is to see who they can get all wound up and stir up strife, and they just live in that drama all the time. Anybody ever? You know, none of you are that way, by the way. It's kind of irritating. So the exhortation is a life that is not stirring up trouble is where we need to live. Believers are instead to live a life with the intention of encouraging people to seek God. You want people to find Jesus. That's how you want to live. So when a believer stirs up trouble, just to stir up trouble or, uh, or hostility, they actually are impeding the proclamation of the gospel. That doesn't mean that we don't ever stand our ground. I mean, if, if somebody comes and says, you may never, ever gather together and worship, then we'll stand our ground and go, sorry. We're going to go ahead and do what God wants us to do. That's a little different than just agitating, just stirring stuff up. We do not want to impede the proclamation of the gospel. In, in going through the study this week, I, I ran across uh, something from John MacArthur. He, he was re relating a story that's connected to this that might help us understand this a little bit. He says this, I remember a conversation I once had with a Russian pastor who had suffered greatly under Soviet communism. I asked if he or his fellow Christians ever rebelled against that form of government? He replied. He replied that it was all their convictions that if they were ever resented and persecuted by the secular authorities, it would be for the gospel only. That's big. The Russian church at the time that this was written, 
actually grew strong in that environment. And this pastor wondered how pastors in America could have holy people without their suffering for the gospel. That's a difficult idea. Suffering only because of your Christian belief and lifestyle brings a blessing. And that kind of suffering should be our expectation. When our suffering is because of Christ, we also should not feel ashamed. Peter tells us that. And ashamed here literally means dishonored. Instead, you're blessed. It's actually an honor. If, you are, if you're persecuted because you're a believer, there's an honor. You're blessed. And in that blessing, you glorify God, even in your suffering. Believers are also not ashamed when they suffer for the gospel because it's evidence of Jesus in them and, and, and our connection to the gospel. It's, our, it's, it's, it's evidence of our love for Christ and love for the message of Jesus. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I am not ashamed. Is that how you live? I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. In first in first Peter four seventeen, he talks about judgment. And judgment there is used to describe God's judgment of sin. And this judgment is is disciplinary action that God brings to believers. We need to understand that he's not talking about a, an eternal judgment here. And 1 Corinthians 11.32 helps us. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So he continues to judge us, which is a, a form of disciplining those of us who believe, who, who believe. But that judgment doesn't mean that we lose what He's done through Christ. We have been saved from the eternal consequences of sin. But God continues to judge our sin. Why? To purify us. To make us more like Jesus. 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. God continues to work with us to help us deal with our sin. He has positionally saved us eternally from our sin. If this kind of judgment that Peter is talking about begins with believers, that begins with the house of God, what can unbelievers expect? It's, it's not a good place to be an unbeliever. 
God will discipline his people. But they are saved from eternal judgment. And this salvation came with great difficulty. Peter mentions that. Great difficulty. What's the great difficulty? Jesus coming, taking on human form and dying a horrible, horrible death. How much more devastating will the judgment be for those who do not repent and believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Have you ever stopped to think about this? You know so-and-so and they don't know Jesus. Think about what's ahead. There is a difference then between the suffering of believers while here on earth and the endless punishment of believers who never come to Christ. Verse 19, there's a therefore, and it links the idea of believers expecting suffering to the spiritual responsibility of believers to suffer according to the will of God. I, I say responsibility because as believers, if, if, you're, if you're to expect suffering, then there's a responsibility that you have. Your responsibility is, where's the suffering? Why? Because that responsibility is that you want other people to see Christ in you. Believers suffer because of their commitment to Christ and the moral standards by which they live. The believer is living in God's will. If you're living in God's will and you're being persecuted, then your persecution is actually in God's will. That's not something we like to hear. I want to find God's will. Well, God's will is for you to suffer. That's not a good message for a Sunday morning. And yet, that's where God wants us to be. If our suffering is because Christ lives in us, and those people persecuting us are persecuting us because they see Christ in us. So suffering, in a way, is an encouragement from God. The suffering is painful. That's not, that's not probably going to change. Suffering hurts. It's uncomfortable. But if we're suffering because of the righteousness of God in us, it's God's will. It's also God's will because God is testing us. He's purifying us. He's purging us of sin and unbelief, and He's instructing us. Those are God's, that's God's will. God does this in us. He, he causes us to go through suffering to be more useful to the to the body of Christ, to be, be of greater and greater benefit to, to brothers and sisters in Christ and to the kingdom. And, and Peter, uses, Peter uses the word entrust, and that's a term that's used in banking. It, it literally means to make a deposit for safekeeping. So you go down to Converse County Bank and, and, you, and you take you know, your, your millions And you make a deposit. Why do you make a deposit? Deposit because it's going to be safe, right? But he says we're safe in in God, the Creator, faithful Creator. Now, we got a good bank, and I'm sure that it's safe and it's secure. But that doesn't even come remotely close to the safety and the security of your soul 
being guarded by the creator of the universe. That's what Peter wants us to get. This is, this is the same word that, Peter, that, that Jesus used while he was on the cross and, and he delivered his, his soul to spirit, his soul to the Father. Do you remember? It's Luke 23, 46. Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed out his last. That word means, Father, I'm giving you my soul because you will watch over it. You will protect it. You will keep it from being destroyed in any way, shape, or form. And that's the same thing Peter wants us to grasp. No matter what we go through, the God of the universe, the creator of the universe, will protect the soul of the believer. God will perfectly do what is right as he watches over our soul. Now, here's the application. There's a couple parts to it. One of them is that the believer is to live with total assurance that as we live out our lives to glorify God in everything we do, God will watch over us, encourage us, train us, and He will never leave us. No matter how hard life gets, no matter what society does to deteriorate, no matter what happens, while we're still here and God hasn't called us home, God's got our back. He's got us covered. We're secure in Him. Won't change. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It also means that we have a motivation to go live like Jesus in every way we can for a blessing. I want to be trained by God. I want more of His holiness. I want to be more like Jesus. The other application is, is when we live this way and people look at us and hate us, that we rejoice because we recognize that they're seeing Jesus. And maybe in seeing Jesus, it starts something happen, happening and they will respond to the stirring of the Holy Spirit and they will come to Christ. If no one around you, no one around you sees Jesus, there's a problem. If everyone you associate with goes, you're, you're one of those Jesus people, you can rejoice and you are blessed in heaven and there's a reward for you. What an incredible motivation and comfort to know that while living in a world growing more and more hostile, Christianity, we've got a blessing. We've got a future. And God's always got our back. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the work that you've done through your son. Thank you, Father God, that we can go through whatever, whatever the circumstances, whatever the suffering. And it's about you. 
Stir our hearts, Holy Spirit, to be more like Jesus. That we would be a greater and greater example of the reality of Jesus. The reality of the Messiah. The reality of the Son of Man. The Son of God. I thank you, Father God, that as we go through this life, you have always got our soul. You protect it. You watch over it. You are always guarding us. Holy Spirit, help us through the test. Help us through the purification. Instruct us. Encourage us. And help us then to rejoice as we go through the suffering in this life. Thank you again, Father, that we can come together and rejoice as believers in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I ask, Father God, that you would move in each one of us. Start being bold, not ashamed of the gospel, so that other people would come into the kingdom to glorify you, to glorify God, to be a part of eternity with God. Use us, Father. Thank you for this time of year when we remember the coming of Jesus. Let us never separate his first coming with his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.